invite you to turn with me to the second book of Samuel, Samuel chapter 12, we'll be considering verses 13 to 23 before we turn to our canons of Dort reference, 2 Samuel 12, reading verses 13 to 23. Found on page 486, if you have the same pew Bible I have here. Hear the word of the Lord. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against God. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. But Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said to him, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, but the child may, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. May it be a blessing to you this day and into your lives. I now invite you to turn with me to Canons of Dort, our third of the three forms of unity, a third confession of the three forms of unity. We turn to the first main point of doctrine. First main point of doctrine comes with the title Divine Election and Reprobation. Uh, Article 17 comes with the title, which makes the title of our message this afternoon also The Salvation of Deceased Infants of Believers. There we read. 
since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out this life in infancy. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, theologically and historically speaking, Article 17 of the first main point of the doctrine of the Canons of Dort is a fascinating article. It is fascinating due to its pastoral intentions and concerns in light of the Synod in which it was written. The first main point of doctrine comes with this title, Divine Election and Reprobation. This was the Synod of Dort's first response to the remonstrant argument for election being based upon foreseen faith. The canons have captured for us that God needs no condition to elect And that it was by his good will that he should call unto himself an undeserving group of sinners away from their sins, leaving all others to their willful disobedience and the eternal consequence that comes with it. Working through the articles that lead up to Article 17 of this first main point of doctrine, we see God's glorious sovereignty. He chooses, also having to admit along the way, because Scripture demands it, that some are not saved. Having discussed thus far God's active election of some, and I'm just summarizing the first 16 articles of this first main point of doctrine, and his passing by or leaving Reprobation of others, we come to this interesting Article 17, which seems at first to, at first glance, to oppose what we have just understood in the previous articles. But does it? Beloved, have you lost a child in the womb or in infancy before you could tell them about Jesus or before they've professed their faith? Has mental disease caused a loved one to to walk away from the covenantal faith that you have been raising them in? Has has the frailty of old age prevented a once God-fearer to no longer be able to profess his or her faith publicly? Have you struggled over such things? This article 17, and if God has so chosen, this message is particularly and pastorally For you. Article 17 stands out amongst these articles for its pastoral care. It is meant for broken hearts to consider and to find some rest. It considers a real life issue that was present, spoken over, and debated on the floor of the Senate of Dort, and it reflects their final conclusions. And I believe the advice 
and concern is broader and more helpful for other considerations, as I have just mentioned. And so let us have our theme. Godly parents ought not doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. That's our theme. It's a sentence from Article 17. We have three points to consider this afternoon. Firstly, God's word. Secondly, God's covenant. And then thirdly, God's election. First, our first point concerns God's word. Yes, yes. First, we must defend the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility, and the sufficiency of God's holy word, the Bible. Article 17 begins with, we must make judgments about God's will from his word. If we're not surveying this book for making judgments about God's will, then anyone else's opinion or writings matter. In this message, however, that I've written and am preaching, with God-fearers in mind, the world's opinions don't matter. Simply let us be reminded of what we believe. We believe... As, I've been, as my wife and I have been teaching our Boys and Girls Club, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good word. The strength in our faith is founded upon the Bible's inspiration. The word in the Greek for the phrase inspiration of God at verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 is theonoustos, literally God breathed. It is a unique word to the Greek of the Old, of, sorry, of the New Testament. Children, think of God breathing life into Adam at Genesis 2 verse 7, or rather the Spirit. The two ideas are highly related and particularly in regards to the Holy Spirit's power. Our understanding of such is helped at 2 Peter 1 verse 21 where we read, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The early Christian church did not create the canon of scripture, but recognized the divine attributes of inspiration amongst the many writings of their day. They understood its presence, that is the presence of the Holy Spirit, his inspiration from the Jewish Old Testament, all 39 books, and they saw and recognized the Holy Spirit's handwriting, if you will, in all 27 books of the New Testament. And not all at once. It took some time to recognize the New Testament. But I will have to leave that to church and to canon history for you to discover. Needless to say then, if we cannot find in it in God's word, we must not believe it. In a day and age... And world where all sorts of things are being taken away from and added to scripture. Where the warnings of Jesus Christ at Revelation 22, 18 and 19 are simply not heeded. We are called to be particularly discerning. 
For this message, for this afternoon's message, I chose the story of the death of David and Bathsheba's first child. And not for where the story begins, but for how it ends. I must begin with, however, by sharing with you the world that King David lived in, even in light of the promises that God made to him just a couple of chapters earlier. 2 Samuel 7, it's a pivotal chapter. We'll speak on such things in the next point. Our passage opens rightfully with confession. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The church is and ought to be well aware of the sins of David that led up to this confession. His lust convinced him of murder and deceit. It took a prophet of God, that that same prophet Nathan, who delivered God's wonderful promises to David at chapter 7, to call him on his saints, on his sins, to bring reproof and correction. For he was unwilling to repent in and of himself. Thank the Lord that God sends one in us, one each of us to each other. Although David is forgiven, he has given the enemies of the Lord reason to blaspheme. And so the hard news of the coming death of this child is delivered. And the heart wants to cry out, doesn't it? What has this child done to deserve this? This person is is paying for the sins of others. Let's remember that. This child knew no sins, humanly speaking. Innocent. And is caused to suffer. The passage tells us why. It is so that the enemies of the Lord learn that even amongst God's own, Payment for sins must be met. How much more for those who willfully sin and cause others to fall? In what follows, we must call out that David remains confident and is hopeful in his God. Verses 16 and 17, in light of what had been declared... David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him and raised him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And the child dies. But in what follows, we must call out that David remains confident and hopeful in his God. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and ate. And in light of the death, congregation, in what follows, we must call out again that David remains confident and hopeful in his God. 
verses 22 and 23. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. And I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. Tell me, congregation, was David elect or reprobate? Did he believe or was he an unbeliever? What impression do you receive from God's word? Even in light of his sins, is David the man after God's own heart? Acts 13.22, referencing 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Is this how scripture remembers him, even in spite of his great sins? And you know the answer is yes. And faith's answer is yes. And in light of such, I reword verse 23 from our passage, for your broken hearts. But now... He is in heaven. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? No, I shall go to him in heaven. But he shall not return to me. We have made judgments about God's will from his word. Well, our second point concerns God's covenant. When, I'm, when God makes a covenant, there is eternity in it, beloved. The word covenant kind of loses its meaning in modern day speech. To, to make covenant with someone seems like an older version of the language, that an older version of the language is at play here. Not so in Reformed theology. Not so at the seminary where I studied and where being covenantal in my theology meant honoring God's word to the utmost. Take a moment then to discuss the word, for it will help us in understanding better the promises made to us and to our children. <clears throat> Let us understand firstly the Trinitarian perfection within which the three persons of God exist, for they, in one way of putting it, are in true covenantal union with one another. Here's a phrase that you may have heard and may have studied. Consider firstly the covenant of redemption in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenant together towards the creation, redemption, and fulfillment of all things. With God's glory in mind, all things are created. A people unto himself are redeemed, and Christ fulfills. To say the least, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in relationship with one another. We talked about that a little bit this morning, too. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't get one of them at a time. Three persons, and yet... They are all needed for the work at hand. Three persons, yet one God. And our relationship, God then, chooses to stay in relationship with his creation, especially his image bearers. 
In the garden, then, scholars have called out the covenant that God made with Adam, one of works. And Adam falls and is punished, but not before establishing with humanity a covenant that scholars refer to as one of grace. But both of which have their foundations built upon the Trinitarian covenant of redemption formerly mentioned. Now, keeping in mind, beloved, in key names like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, and then finally in Christ, the covenant of redemption is unfolded and more fully revealed. Many have debated where, where works and grace find their place over redemptive, sorry, redemptive history and in regards to the kinds of promises made to each of these biblical characters of old mentioned. And depending on who you read, differing conclusions can be made. It's not my point this afternoon to delineate that for you. What we all can agree on, however, is that what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set in order, set in motion, and yet shall yet fulfill in the covenant of redemption. That this has the salvation of Christ's people all wrapped up within, and congregation, it affects our children. Article 17 thinks upon such things when God's word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. Well, where, you may want to ask, and I shall provide only three, for such is sufficient, three examples. Consider Adam and Eve good, or very good even, for that was what was declared at the end of day six in the garden. They knew no sin, yet could choose against God, and did, and fell. Murder was not present before the fall. Now, children, ask, tell me, is murder bad? Is murder bad? How do you know? You just, you just know it, don't you? It is because God's law is written on your heart. Murder is bad. It was not present before the fall, and it is immediately present after in the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, Genesis 4. Adam's choice affected his offspring, no? Well, let us consider Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 then. At Genesis 12, 3, we hear God say to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the enemies of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, but, but this doesn't really call out the children. It says families, but, but there's, there's a broadness present here. At Genesis 15, 5, we hear God say to Abraham, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Okay. But this is dealing with Abram's descendants. Yes, they will be born infants and grow into children and then adults. But God is making promises to adults here, supposedly. And he does also with uh, Isaac and Jacob and others. One can argue that Jesus was baptized as an adult. But 
Let us then read Genesis 17, 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male, male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your Generations, He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, we note then that children and adults under the headship of the household are to receive the sign of the covenant as well. As Adam's children were touched by the decisions he made, so are those in Abram's household. I realize that Adam's decision to fall has affected his family in a negative way. In Abram's household, it was affected in a much positive way. Finally, let us consider David at 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yes, God has Solomon in mind. This is immediately where we go to. But the next child born to David and Bathsheba. Sorry, God has Solomon in mind. The next child born to David and Bathsheba. But more so, his son Jesus Christ shall come to bring fulfillment. God's covenants affect those with whom he makes them. And their households. <coughs> And their children. Well our third point concerns God's election. It is because of all that we have spoken. That we can now come to the final phrase. And theme of today's passage. Before we come to it explicitly however. Let us note historically. What the reformed church. Leading up to the Senate of Dort. Was being accused of. The remonstrants. Who were professing. Remember. That it takes foreseen faith. For God to elect someone failed to understand that if, if, that were be to, if that were to be the case, no infant could be saved. And that every infant who dies in infancy is deemed unsavable and damned to eternal torment. This is where that theology goes. Even if God looked over time and saw foreseen faith. Acted upon. It eliminates our children who die in infancy. Well, let us leave for a moment the grieving mother whose infant has passed away with such a thought on her mind. Let us objectively and unemotionally understand that there are only two options for humanity. Scripture calls out a people called unto God. 
and a people left. Those who are elect and those who are not. There is no other option. Arminian theology was concluding coldly that no assurance for these little ones could be held on to. Therefore, what are we left with? The Synod of Dort chose to respond in strong opposition to such a thought. Having known that the covenant of God made with Abram was to him and affected his children, having seen David's confidence that he would see his child in heaven, they went on to cite passages that speak to the different and privileged status of covenant children of believing parents. God says at Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be with God, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then they quoted Matthew 19, 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. Acts 2, 39, for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord calls. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Galatians 1, verse 15, it pleased God. who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. So there are those verses that show concern on God's part for little ones. Ah, but Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, Romans 9, verse 13, spouts the Arminian. Elders, the next time you go and visit a God-fearing, weeping, would-be mother, which sets of scripture will you bring? That Jesus loves the little children? He doesn't care. Yes, we cannot know the secret thoughts of God, but Scripture testifies strongly in favor of the election of our children who die in infancy. In this we must be confident, in this we ought not doubt. This was as much a comfort back in the days of the Synod when infant mortality rates were between 15 to 30 percent as it is a comfort for us today who have lost little ones in the womb. It is a comfort for us whose family members are suffering from mental illness. It is a comfort for us whose loved ones' memories are stolen away in old age. Well, lastly, in conversation with some, then, the argument has been made that if all children who die in infancy of believing parents are elect, why not abort them rather than force them to have to live this suffering life? Now, this was not a question that the Senate had to answer, but it is a question 
But we must in these present days. For that is the argument, part of the argument of the pro-choice movement. Why would you want to bring an unwanted child into this world? Unloved and a burden. They call it mercy killing. Simple truth, congregation, is that God doesn't elect through murder. Murdering infants is not the work necessary for election. God didn't look over time and see all the babies who would be aborted and elect them because of murder. God elects through his own good pleasure and merciful grace. And based on scripture's profession, we ought not doubt such things. And I found this last part particularly helpful. Note also that we only make such a declaration after God calls out of this life our children in their infancy. This is to be a pastoral declaration given after our children have passed. This is a hope given to the church of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers do not have such a hope, but through repentance and belief, they can have it too. For God's election is eternal and can affect anyone at any time in their lives. Well, it has been my burden, beloved, this afternoon that you have found comfort in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is able. I hope that you receive the comfort and confidence that David, the man after God's own heart, had at the death of his own child because of his own sin. It is a comfort that Christ fulfills and that you shall fully experience at his return. Godly parents ought not doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy.